Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Matthew Clark podcast, where we sit down with the industry's key figures. Today we are meeting Megan Frank, General Manager at Dr. Constantine Frank Wines from the Finger Lakes region of New York State. Thank you for being here today, Megan. Yeah, thank you for having me, Anthony. Great to be here. So you've only got a couple of days here in London. How are you finding it? That's right. Yeah, it's a little bit rainy, but all in all, it's wonderful. I'm loving the accent. Grand. <laughs> so Dr. K. Frank revolutionized wine growing in Finger Lakes after arriving in the US in 1951. He was professor of plant sciences and it brought with him a vision that would elevate wine growing in the region. I understand you're planning to revolutionise the way the winery is run as well as the quality of the wines. Would you like to talk to us about that? Sure, yeah, I'd love to. Um, In the Finger Lakes we do things a little bit differently. So because we were one of the first wineries in the region, the first winery actually to plant vinifera, um, we continue to offer free tastings to all of our customers and that's quite a rare thing in the US. It's typically a charged scenario. Um, But we offer free tastings, we get 80,000 visitors a year. We just opened up a secondary reserve tasting room, which has been a really fun project. Um, We do that in the top of our uh, facility that we produce sparkling wines in, and it changes monthly. So we have a monthly theme, and this month we're focusing on sparkling wines. So we take visitors down to do a tour of the sparkling facility. We then go upstairs, everything's all set up with a flight of wines paired with small bites from a local chef who lives in the area. The wines and the foods are also paired with pieces of art, so we work with a local gallery about half an hour away, and they rotate the art pieces. (laughs) Additionally, we're doing a study with Cornell University about music pairings, so it's actually funny. One of the researchers on that project is uh, from Oxford. She's getting her PhD from there, so we're also pairing the wines with music, so it's a really neat sensory experience. So we're trying new and different things to engage our customers and give them a really exceptional experience. Uh, Additionally, we have a lot of long-term staff members. Uh, Really, they kind of become part of the family. (laughs) So our our head winemaker has been with us for 28 years, our vineyard manager, 36 years, our retail manager, 24 years, and of course my dad has been president for about over 25 years. So it's a really nice group to have very long-term invested people in the company, kind of the the sweat equity model, I guess. (laughs) That's great. Good Mm -hmm. insight. So you've mentioned uh, the importance of family and relationships there, and I think I'm right in saying that you're the fourth generation of the the Frank family winemakers. So with that, do you feel that you have a duty to preserving the work that has gone on before you, or is it more about building on the foundations and moving it forward? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think that... It's a bit of both, and it's been a a difficult thing for me to not stray too far away from our philosophy and our values, and I have to remember to keep looking behind me and make sure that we're keeping, staying true to what we've always done, but at the same time, we always need to be, you know, not resting on our laurels, really going forward and making sure that the quality of the wine is always improving, that we're taking advantage of the the newest technology and advancements. And uh, I think it really is a bit of both, Um, but that's been a very fun challenge for me. So with my dad, uh, we work together really well. He's kind of the one that uh, keeps me from going off on the rails and (laughs) my ideas from becoming too, too strange. So we work very well uh, in terms of kind of the yin and yang effect. (laughs) 
which is very helpful to have. Okay, so you, you touched on that briefly, but um, just to get a bit of insight, obviously families are, we have an expression in England where you can choose your friends but not your family. When you're working with your family, do you find that you tend to share the same vision or is there a bit of conflict sometimes? Yeah, I'd say at the end of the day, it's the same vision. You know, uh, my dad and uh, the other family members who I work with, we know that we're all sharing the same vision. You know, we all want the winery to prosper and we all want to move forward. How we get there is maybe a different story. So that's where we kind of differ sometimes. But I think that it's given all of us kind of a greater purpose in what we're doing and the work that we're doing. So when we talk to winemakers, um, they quite often they talk about a philosophy behind the winemaking. Um, could you put into a couple of sentences, sums up Dr. Frank? Absolutely. Hopefully it's less than a few sentences. We'll make it, make it concise. But yeah, so we do have a, a philosophy that we really, um, really hold true and Constantine was very much a scientist, an experimenter, so he had earned a PhD in viticulture from, from Odessa, from Ukraine. And when he came to plant uh, back in the 1960s, we, um, he had over 66 different grape varieties went on the property. So things that we still have today, like Riesling, Pinot Noir, Cabernet Franc, Gilbert uh, Schreiner, but also things like Pedro Jimenez and Ferment and <laughs> really interesting, interesting things um, that we've since kind of, in the 80s, my grandfather ripped some of those things out that really just didn't belong here. But he kept really esoteric, unique grape varieties like Arcatzatelli, um, we have Gruner Veltliner, Lemberger, Separavi and Eastern European wine grape from Georgia. So very interesting things. So we continue to really experiment uh, with different clones, rootstocks, styles, also equipment. We just got in some new amphoras actually from from Georgia, which is a really fun, um, really fun piece of equipment to to look at for the winemaking styles. So we're very much into experimentation, kind of celebrating the diversity of the styles that we produce and thinking outside the box. I think that's really important, and that's something that we've definitely taken into with the consumer experience and also with the styles of wine that we produce. Excellent. Um, it's really good to hear that you've got that open mind towards different grape varieties and some really interesting ones that are some of my favorites. But uh, we've got to talk about Riesling. It's kind of, I guess, your bread and butter. And you've had some really good successes with 90 points from Wine Enthusiast, 93 mm -hmm. points Wine Spirit Magazine. Um, really great wines that you've got to be proud of. but. What would you say would be the secret to making a good Riesling? Yes, well, I don't know if I should reveal the secret, that might give us away. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Riesling is really an interesting grape to work with. It's so expressive of where it's planted, and I think that's part of the magic of Riesling and why there's so many different styles produced in the world. Uh, it's just very, um, very, very interesting to work with, especially in the vineyard. So most of our job is in the vineyard with Riesling. It's a very common phrase, uh, wine is made in the vineyard, and it's very true with Riesling, <laughs> kind of, sort of, uh, with Riesling because uh, it's a lot of tending to uh, our blocks, especially the older blocks. We have to be um, very nurturing to the, to the older blocks, and we have a very high concentration of shale on our property. So 
really rocky acidic soils very very interesting uh, for producing Riesling and a nice steep slope down to the water so it's a it's a really a perfect perfect site additionally we have a secondary site on the next lake over Seneca Lake which is a deeper lake over 600 feet deep Huca is over two, about 200 feet deep so also a very deep glacial lake but on Seneca we're on the eastern side so we get the afternoon sun. It's a very, very warm, warm block. It's affectionately known as the banana belt of the Finger Lakes. So no bananas, but it's, it's a very warm area. And we can produce a completely different style of Riesling there. So it's nice to have the diversity in soil types from the Finger Lakes to be able to work with um, many different, you know, blocks. Additionally, we have some really old vines. So Constantine began planting in uh, 1958 was the first block on the property so nearly 60 year old vines and we're seeing lower yields from those older blocks but more concentration more complexity the root systems are able to go down very deep 10 20 feet down into the soil and pick up trace elements that younger vines can't reach yet so it's a really uh, key part of our style and nurturing these older blocks very very important well, I was going to ask next what makes the Finger Lakes region so compatible with Riesling production, but I think you've, you've covered that off. Mm -hmm. The main point here is having that diversity, so you've got lots of different fruit parcels that you can blend together to make this style of wine that you want to have. Mm -hmm. So I think moving on from there, Riesling, it's, it's one of the three noble, noble white grape varieties mm -hmm. around the world alongside Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc. Mm -hmm. um, do you think it is seeing a resurgence and do you think that it's going to maybe catch those other varieties at some point? I think that Riesling will probably always be kind of like a hipster, <laughs> kind of a niche wine. Uh, yeah, we'll see. Maybe it will. But I think Riesling, it's, it's a bit mysterious because you, you don't have, like with Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc, when you see it on a wine list, um, you can kind of get a sense of what it's going to be like, you know, from the region and, and the style. With Riesling, it's so, there's so many different sweetness levels, so many different, um, you know, blocks where it's planted that it's going to be very, very different each time you order it. So I think that's part of the magic of Riesling, and I think that's part of the key of why it's so mysterious and unique and different. Um, it's It could be. I mean, it's probably the best food wine there is just due to the acidity and uh, the concentration that you get so I, I think it definitely has the potential to I just think a lot of consumers when they look at a list and they see Riesling there's an unfortunate um, perception that it's going to be sweet which is something that we fight against constantly that's why we actually label the Riesling that Matthew Clark carries as dry Riesling so at least people can get the sense of what it's going to be stylistically uh, however, even though it says dry Riesling, you know, at tastings people say, oh, this is a sweet, this is Riesling, this must be sweet. So it's a bit difficult to try and contradict that, at least in the U.S. I'm not sure what the, the conception is here in the U.K. No, I think you're, you're spot on. There's a, a big um, misconception, perhaps, mm -hmm. that Riesling is going to be sweet. Mm -hmm. And you know, the same thing with Chardonnay, people expect it to be oaky. Right. Um, and the same way you've made the dry Riesling on the label, we have unoaked Chardonnay sure. on the label. Just to try and break that, but um, 
mean, another wine that's perhaps a bit misunderstood is mm. Cabert's Tremina. Mm -hmm. um, we, we have one from you, of course. So would you like to move on to tell us a bit more about that wine? Absolutely. Yeah, this Cabert's <laughs> is probably one of my favorite wines that we make. Uh, it's just a super, super interesting, very floral, uh, very spicy, lychee. Um, I did some uh, studies in Australia and I remember during our sensory, sensory studies, somebody raised their hand and said, it's just like Turkish Delight and I've never had Turkish Delight before so I had to go out and buy it. And now it's my favorite candy so I, no wonder I like Gewürz Schmiener. Uh, but the Gewürz on our farm does exceptionally well, especially in the shale, the shale blocks that we have on Cuca Lake. And it really retains its acidity, which is a very interesting, fresh, fresher style, um, not as oily or viscous as, as other regions would produce. Uh, it's quite a dry Gewürztraminer as well. It has about eight grams of residual sweetness, so balanced with a nice high acidity, uh, very perfumed without being cloying. Um, we do quite a bit of cold maceration on the skins before fermentation begins which is a very important step for us to really extract those delicate aromatics that are found very close to the skins. So about 48 hours roughly, depending on the year, is how long that, that uh, cold maceration would um, start before fermentation. So it's neat to work with some uh, skin contact and then also we do quite a bit of lees work uh, after fermentation to kind of build up the texture, uh, make sure we have kind of a nice long finish on the palate as well that really holds holds through so it's a, I think it's a really interesting style and I think with the diversity of restaurants in London and the surrounding area it's just a perfect match with anything spicy um, anything with uh, a bit of heat it's a really a perfect pairing so it's nice that you talk about the texture because one thing I try to do when I'm tasting wine to people is not just to think about flavors but to think about how it feels and the whole experience as well mm -hmm. um, so moving on to the the other wine that we have with you the Cabernet Franc mm -hmm. we see there's, there's quite a lot of Cabernet Franc planted around the Finger Lakes area so is there a particular reason that that wine works very well the grapes prosper there yeah it's probably the number one vinifer red in the Finger Lakes it's a very very uh, attractive red for the area because it ripens a few weeks earlier than some of the other red varieties like Cabernet Sauvignon. So when we're getting snow the first week of November, <laughs> it's nice to be able to pick the Cabernet Franc, you know, two, one or two weeks before that. Um, but it, it has a floral quality that I think is just really enticing and it also has a nice fresh acidity. It's also one that we don't see a lot of competition from warmer climates with a varietal, you know, varietally labeled Cabernet Franc. It's kind of a niche, a niche wine, um, which is nice to be able to, to not have a, a direct competitor in a, you know, in California, say, or uh, Australia or another warmer, warmer region. But it has, uh, it's quite savory, um, nice red fruits coming through, but we do quite a bit of extended maceration and also cold maceration before fermentation to build up the color. So it has a beautiful bright purple kind of color which is uh, very enticing as well. And we're, we're really trying to build up the color in the tannins and it has a nice acidity so it'll age beautifully. And it actually does need a bit of time but it's drinking very well now. We just had the, the 14 at the last appointment which was very good. So yeah, I think it's just a very fresh, um, you know, 
really nice red with not too much alcohol, which seems to be kind of on trend with what's going on. We've just always produced wine like this, and now the trend is swinging our way, which is which is very nice. So it's um, got about 12 and a half, 13% alcohol, so nice and fresh and uh, very earthy uh, with a long acidity. So it's very nice red for the region for sure. Okay, so just going back in time a little bit, um, back to the 1950s now when Dr. Constantine Frank came into the area and started planting these grapes. Um, I there was a bit of ridicule at that time because people had been trying to, to grow wine grapes in the area for three centuries. Um, so what, what do you think was the, the thinking behind him doing that when everyone else had failed? This is a very, very interesting story, actually. Um, so, Konstantin was a well-respected scientist in Ukraine. So, throughout Eastern Europe, he was known as, you know, being really a, a key figure in grape growing and winemaking in Ukraine. Um, and he basically was forced to leave. He and his family were forced to flee Ukraine, and they ended up coming to the U.S. So, Konstantin was in his 50s had a long you know career already he spoke nine languages of course no English because that would have been way too easy <laughs> so they, they come penniless they land in New York City and a colleague recommends that he should check out the Geneva experiment station at Cornell it's just a few hours away by bus so he calls constantly calls them up and explains in his broken English his credentials and they just say we don't have any positions available that suit you know your skills so he um, books a ticket without an appointment, heads up to the experiment station, and asks for a position. And they, say, they tell him the same thing, that they don't have anything available. So he finds a German-speaking scientist in the hallway. He just over, overhears him and talks himself into a low-level grant-funded position. And that was really the start of where Constantine was meeting the key industry, you know, people in the region and kind of getting a feel for what was happening at the time in the Finger Lakes. And he was very disheartened and disappointed that there was no vinifera, no European grapes at all in the region. And when he asked why, the thinking was that it was far too cold in the Finger Lakes. And he laughed and he said, in Ukraine, in the winter, your spit would freeze before it hit the ground. So cold that there's no way it suited the cold because he was able to plant vinifera successfully. He knew it had to be something else. And, you know, he was saying this with um, really trying to make somebody understand that someone listened to him. And there was one winemaker who uh, was working at a winery on Cuca Lake, which has since gone out of business. He was originally from Champagne. So Constantine and his name was Charles Fonnier, they were able to communicate in French. And Charles was so excited about Constantine's kind of drive and enthusiasm to plant vinifera, he hired him on the, on the spot to be director of research. So that's when Constantine moved up to Cuca Lake and they began their trials. And what the key to his success was, was rafting with phylloxera resistant rootstock. So American, American rootstock, um, mainly from the varieties Vitis labresca and Vitis repara, was uh, very successful and he grafted like a puzzle piece with Vitis vinifera. And they had a devastating winter in uh, the next year that they planted, 1955. 
and the vinifera survived and that was really the um the nail you know hit the nail on the head he was very excited and he was frustrated that the swiner he was working at was not going to rip out all their plantings overnight and plant everything in vinifera so he decided to start his own winery and with Constantine's background, I mean, he really wasn't set up to own his own business or to start a winery. He had really just been a researcher and experimenter, he was a professor. So he started in uh, 58, began planting, purchased a 100-acre farm on Cuca Lake, and basically began his own experiment station. So 66 different grape varieties on the property. He isolated each block separately to test the quality, to look at the soil type. He worked with all different types of rootstocks, many different clones. There's actually certain clones of grape varieties that we have on the farm that we don't know the genetic you know, history of them. So people in the area and throughout the East Coast called it the Dr. Frank clone because there's just no way of knowing where it came from. So it's just a very interesting um, story where he came from really nothing, living in a squalid you know, tenement in New York City and starting his own winery 10 years later and basically changing American viticulture. You know, he uh, invited winemakers and viticulturists from all over the U.S. to work in the cellar, work in the winery, and then they would take those techniques back to their home states and plant vinifera. So um, there's at least one bonded winery today in every single state in the U.S., and many of them have vinifera planted. So uh, they, many of them owe their success to Constantine, and he used to say, uh, Americans deserve only excellent, and that's really what he believed. He wasn't happy with the native grape varieties, the Concord, Catawba, Niagara, and the French-American hybrids, which everybody seemed to be happy with during the 50s and, and before in our region. So. He made a lot of enemies <laughs> during his time, but he also made a lot of friends and really um, helped face um, a very difficult trajectory that the, the eastern U.S. Was, was going through. So. That's a really good story. It's, um, yeah, it's almost the American dream, isn't it? It is, certainly and, is. And go from nothing to, um, as I understand it, because of his work, he, he's got a part in the, the Wine Spectator Hall of Fame. Is he that does. That is that is correct. And can you believe he was born on the 4th of July? Isn't Perfect. that, inc isn't that yeah. incredible? That's fantastic. So, in spite of all of this work and this, this amazing story, which um, I'm sure will help Matthew Clark guys to sell some more of the wine, um, customers in the, in the UK don't seem too familiar with wines from this area. If we think of US wine, you mentioned every state is growing wine to some degree, but we see a little bit of Washington, sure. we see a lot of California, Finger Lakes, New York, we don't really hear much about it. So, are they, I guess the, the question was going to be, are they missing out? We, we know the answer to that. But yes. um, perhaps, you know, what can we do to bring it more to the fore? Yes. I think also with the styles that people are interested in drinking today, uh, it fits perfectly. You know, the Finger Lakes, um, you know, Riesling, Gewurz, Cabernet Franc, even sparkling wines, they're fresh, they have a nice high acidity. And we have some of the oldest wines in the U.S. You know, many of them, we have the second oldest Pinot Noir block in the U.S. Uh, and this is because in California, back in the 60s and beforehand, uh, UC Davis, you know, the main uh, winemaking school in the in the US was recommending a rootstock AXR1 that was not phylaxia resistant 
So this was a really vigorous, it adapted to many different grape varieties. It was a kind of a magic root stock, if you will, and everybody was planting on it. And Constantine was very upset about this uh, back in the 60s when he started and he heard that they were using XR1 because it has a vinifera parent. So he, he knew it wasn't lactose resistant. So we've found since um, my, my, in my dad's office letters that Constantine was writing to the Commissioner of Agriculture begging him to stop using this rootstock that was not lactose resistant. And of course, you know, they were typed in his broken English, so nobody really took him seriously. This guy, this crazy old Ukrainian guy in New York. And um, they were, you know, they had to replant. There was phylloxera uh, and incidents of phylloxera in the 70s and the 80s again. And California lost a lot of its older blocks, with the exception of Old Vines Inn, because that was uh, planted on a phylloxera-resistant rootstock, St. George. But because of that, we have some of the oldest vines within the U.S. And I think that that's meant to be celebrated. I think part of the reason why we haven't gotten as much kind of investment is our proximity to a, a major city. We're about five hours from New York City, uh, two and a half hours from, from Canada. We're kind of in the middle of nowhere, if you will, <laughs> which is part of its charm. So the wineries, the hundred or so wineries in the Finger Lakes are all pretty much family-owned farms. We haven't seen the investment um, that, that other regions have received, and I think that's part of why, you know, we have probably less available with outside of the U.S. I mean, many of the wineries in the Finger Lakes are just sending their wine out through their tasting room, so it's just literally the local you know, tourism that uh, the wines are available in. So we're, we're thrilled to be to be in London, and I think that there's real value in a lot of these wines, and and um, really uh, recognized as one of the best Riesling, Riesling areas in the world. Good. So quite often when we're talking to, to our clients, especially some of the more, more prestigious ones, they're looking for something a little bit different. So sure. I guess that's where the market could be for you guys. So. Just finally, to, to sum up, what would you say is, is the future for, for your generation of the Dr. K family and, and where are the wines going to be going in the next five to ten years? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think we're really looking to give people a great experience. And whether they're drinking our wine, whether they come visit us. So for us, a lot of that is about the experience and making sure that we can tell the story but still bring in new things, kind of like what we talked about, bridging the gap between kind of the older generation and then the new. Um, but we really, we're going to continue producing really unique esoteric wine varieties, and um, the styles will continue to, um, to make really refreshing, higher acidity, um, aromatic whites mainly. So I think there's a... Uh, going to be great things in the future so we welcome everyone to come visit us reach out we'd love to to host all of you at the winery yes we're we have a hospitality house that we're working on so you can stay on the farm and it's really a beautiful area uh, very authentic untouched you know gorgeous area in all seasons so we'd love to have all of you awesome thank you very much thank you to find out more about dr constantine frank wines visit the method club website and don't forget to join us next time when we will be talking to Hugh Crichton from Fidel Wines.